1: To me, the debate we've had over the past 12 years about how we as a society responded to 9-11 has not been fierce enough. And I don't think we've asked many of the right questions.
2: I'm Raihan Salaam, and this is The Vice Podcast. I'm joined today by Jeremy Scahill, a correspondent for The Nation, an independent journalist, author of Dirty Wars, and also figures prominently in Dirty Wars, a new film that is in theaters now. It is riveting. It is disturbing. You will watch it. You might enjoy it. You will certainly learn something. Jeremy, thanks very much for joining me. Hey, thanks, man. It's great to be with you. Jeremy, you have worn many hats in your young life. And independent journalist is not the first of them mm. so as you were coming of age um, you know is it issues surrounding terrorism and national security and war that first motivated
1: you or was it something entirely different no I mean actually uh, you know I wanted to be a teacher um, I discovered I wasn't a very good student myself so I had some bumps in the road there but um you know, I had, I had, I'm from Wisconsin, and um, I, I got involved at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with um, a social justice struggle in the mid-'90s over the rights of homeless people on the campus and decided that I wanted to, uh, to leave school. I, my, my plan was to come back, but I hitchhiked from Wisconsin out to D.C., and I moved in at this big homeless shelter called the Community for Creative Nonviolence. And a lot of what I was doing there was taking care of, uh, of veterans, you know, trying to help them apply for benefits and fill out paperwork. And I ended up hearing this radio show with uh, this woman, Amy Goodman, you know, it was the host of Democracy Now, and I started writing her letters, uh, saying, you know, I'll I'll walk your dog if you have a dog, or I'll you know be you know get you coffee or clean your windows. I mean, I wanted to do anything to be a part of it, and I had never thought about being a journalist before. But the idea that there was there was someone who was a journalist who also seemed to care deeply about the impact of our policies domestically and abroad for some reason really resonated strongly with me and I really I, I felt like wow I I'd seen a light I wanted to be a journalist. So the University of
2: Wisconsin it's a big campus you know you've got certain thousands of students uh, most of whom are not seized with a passion about homelessness uh, but of course there were a few other kids and and what was it about you and those other students who were taken with this that drew you to these folks who were marginal who were yeah. mostly neglected.
1: I mean, I think part of it is like how I grew up. You know, I, I grew up in Milwaukee in Jeffrey Dahmer's neighborhood. Um, and uh, both my parents are nurses. My dad had been at the Catholic Worker, you know, the, the Catholic pacifist lay movement um, in the late 60s, early 70s. He lived with Dorothy Day, um, the founder of that movement. Um, and had traveled to Cuba on the Venceremos Ramos Brigade and you know, I wouldn't say that my parents were activists But we definitely grew up in a household with a social justice mission And um, you know, my, my dad is a very religious guy And you didn't rebel against it by, like, um, you know, kind of wanting to carry on a briefcase
2: as a ten-year-old
1: Yeah, no, I was not Alex P. Keaton yeah. or anything like that I've never I don't recall ever wearing a bow tie except maybe in, in some kind of a weird Halloween thing with my brother, but um no, but we—I mean—we grew up in a place where, like, I knew early on who Malcolm X was and Martin Luther King and uh, James Baldwin was really influential um, on my thinking and the way that I saw the world. And you know, there were books that were around the house, but no, I didn't—I didn't rebel in that in that sense. But you know, I, I definitely think my, my views of the world and what it means to be in community with other people was shaped by who my parents are. So you mentioned that several of the the homeless. Um people on
2: campus had been veterans. Yeah. Um, and so that's something you knew you got to know their stories I assume. Mm. Um,
1: did you find that affecting at the time? It yeah, was that definitely something you explored a lot. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, I remember going to the uh, to the Vietnam War Memorial when I was living in Washington D.C. and seeing all the stuff that people would leave there and, you know, I didn't I don't come from a military family. That's not my my background at all. Um, but I remember being sort of profoundly impacted by the idea that These people had been abroad in these wars and that there are guys that are alcoholics that are living on the street i mean to be in a homeless shelter with a substantial portion of veterans in it i had never thought i I didn't know about that phenomenon at all and and getting to know some of those guys definitely shaped how i saw the way that our nation treats people in the military when they come home i wouldn't say that that was some major Uh, event in my life. But years later, when I started doing military reporting and and, and looking at the situation of the Veterans Administration and how veterans are treated in our society, I I definitely realized that I, I had an insight into it that I didn't understand at the time. Um, you know how these people were being treated you didn't grow up in a military family But your parents had been shaped by the Vietnam War
2: and the experience of opposing the Vietnam War yeah, I, definitely. I mean and so that was something that was a theme when you were growing up that was very present for you Would you say is you were aware of that?
1: Yeah? I mean I remember when when military recruiters started coming to our high school and you know my dad saying like steer clear of them, like don't go anywhere near them um, but yeah, I mean we definitely grew up in a I mean my my dad is a pacifist and um you know, and he's—he's not—you know—not you know, not an armchair pacifist. He was a guy who, uh, who really, had thought about these issues and believed very deeply in them. And I, you know, we definitely grew up learning about the pacifist tradition. I'm not a pacifist myself. I, I used to think that I was, but I'm not. But I have tremendous respect for people who take that, stake out that position in life, and live by it. You used to think you were. What was—what was the moment when that changed? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think. Um, you know, when I sort of studied struggles for liberation around the world, um, I, uh, I also was impacted by the writings of David Dellinger, who was one of the Chicago Eight and was a you know, a very, very famous pacifist. And Dellinger's writings on the Cuban revolution were really interesting because he, he talked about how uh, if, if you can be an armchair pacifist in the United States um, and you can advocate For people who are rising up against a U.S.-backed dictatorship to do it nonviolently, but if you're not willing to go down there and stand alongside them without weapons when they're fighting against, you know, an entrenched military backed by the United States, um, then it's not actually a principle. In other words. If you're going to oppose revolutionary violence or or violence of rebels trying to overthrow an oppressive government, um, then you have to have a solution for how they should be resisting it that also includes you putting some skin in the game. And so it was it was looking at specific examples of people in revolt around the world and saying, how can I advocate being a pacifist um, and, and say that those people also should not be taking up arms to resist an oppressive or repressive government? I mean, that's true. That's a debate that endures to this day, I think. So it's about engagement
2: to some degree. The idea is that, you know, kind of not merely to be engaged by paying attention and telling these stories, but also being engaged by, to some extent, celebrating combatants. I mean, sort of for uh, defending themselves, as you might see. It. Well, it's
1: it's more, it's, it's. I mean, I would say that I'm I'm, I'm reluctantly not a pacifist. I mean, I I, I I personally don't like guns, and I don't like violence as a solution to anything micro or macro in the world. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've learned in traveling around the globe is that uh, people uh, people that sort of on the left or in the anti-war crowd can also be extraordinarily arrogant with the way that they view the struggles of others. And p- part of what I've tried to do in my journalism is to tell the story of, of those people who live on the other side of the barrel of the gun that, that is U.S. foreign policy. And, and I think it's very easy to use terms like collateral damage to describe, uh, you know, people that are killed in a drone strike somewhere in pursuit of, of one or two bad guys killing five or six people that had nothing to do with them other than being related to them or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, part of our role as journalists should be to go to those places and put a human face on it. Um, and I think that you know, we don't do enough of that in our media culture in the United States. We don't often go and talk to the other side or the other sides uh, as much as we should. It does a disservice to the idea that we have a democratic media. If we're, if we're at war, you know, or we're told that we're at war, and some of us are not willing to go and, and to the other side and get the perspective of the people that we're told are the enemy, um, then that does a disservice to media and a democratic society. That's, that's one of my main motivating fact, you know, factors in life is being someone who will go and listen to people that uh, if we don't go there, their voices aren't going to be heard.
2: I think that definitely comes through in the film, this project of trying to humanize and trying to complicate some of these stories. Uh, you know, When you think about the story of Anwar al-Awlaki, the way that it was relayed in you know much of the U.S. media is just simply that he is a figure who is a leading figure in a military organization, yet much of his complicated backstory. And, and we'll yeah. return to that, but the one thing I wanted to ask you is, In order for you to do your work, and you're someone who, you know, very publicly, very clearly has views about uh, the national security state and what have you, you still need to get people to trust you. Um, and, and what I find striking is that to get them to trust you, uh, I mean, have you thought about things from the perspective of a frontline operator, uh, from someone who is working within the NSA, the CIA, who is actually designing uh, targeted killings and what have you? How are they seeing this conflict? How do they justify the actions that they're taking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you something interesting. I um, you know, so I wrote this book about Blackwater, the mercenary company or private security company, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and, and no one from that company would talk to me at all. And it was sort of, there was like an edict issued, like, don't talk to Scahill. And, um, and then I'm, I was doing like book tour and going traveling, speak around the country. And, and in n- numerous places, I would have these guys that, that were clearly sort of special ops guys that would be kind of lingering around afterwards. And they'd come up to me and say, listen, man, you know, I don't agree with almost anything that you say politically, but you were right about those guys, you know. And, and I started to meet guys from within the special operations community who had very little in common with me. Um, but they didn't like Blackwater. And like I, I pride myself on not being a dick to people. And, it, and I think that a lot of those guys thought that I would be an it's asshole. And um, and so what I, the way I responded is I would say, like, let's go get a beer. And I started to get to know guys from that community. And now, I mean, I have friends who are former Navy SEALs or worked on as drone pilots. Um, and, and I find them fascinating as people. And some of those friendships turned into source relationships. And they opened, I mean, I... I spend a lot of my time telling people you have to see the humanity in the victims of US drone strikes or night raids or cruise missiles, that we have to back away from this idea that American lives are worth more than non-American lives. And so all this time I'm running around and trying to humanize people on the other side of our foreign policy, and I myself had a cartoonish view of people that were in the special ops community or in the intelligence community. Um, And when I started to see them as humans also and, and hear some of their real stories, it, it, it changed my perspective in some ways of, of the world that we live in, but it also gave me a much richer understanding of their stories and why they do what they do. A lot of those guys, the younger generation of guys, were motivated by 9-11 and they enlisted and they became part of this machine. And and what I've seen in my years of friendship with some of these guys is their own views changing. They understood the objective early on. They wanted to be part of a response that was aimed at bringing the perpetrators of 9-11 to justice. Many of those same guys who who were all in on that are now saying, I don't quite understand what we're doing in Afghanistan anymore. I know people that have quietly resigned from positions involving targeting Yemen, for instance because they think it's at cross-purposes to the stated goal of trying to end terrorism. Um, but I also know people who will give a forceful defense of it, and they will say, you don't have access to the information that we do. And and you're right, with a capital T truth, you're right. But we have to deal with small t truths every day. That's what a CIA targeter said to me recently. Um, we're being shown intelligence on a regular basis that these are dangerous people that are plotting against the United States, and the options available to us are send a SEAL team in to get them, which means that some of our guys could be killed, or take them out with a drone strike. And, and that's how they see what they're doing. It's not that they're immune to the bigger truths of all of these wars. It's that their job is to target individuals that are supposedly representing imminent threat to the United States. And then when you get down into the granular level and you talk about what is imminence, the Justice Department redefined that term in that white paper that was leaked and it, it was sort of a ridiculous redefining of imminence to the point where anyone who's ever been involved with a plot represents a permanent, enduring imminent threat to the United States. But I do think that um, this is the debate we should be having right now. And I think to, to some extent, my understanding is that it is taking place in some of these uh, U.S. intelligence agencies and within the military itself. Um, but I don't think that enough of us, coming from my perspective, take the time to understand how these programs work or to get to know people within it. And part of it is that there's total mistrust. There's a huge gap. Um, but I, I, I try to be a person who is consistent. I wanna be the same person I am in private as I am in public. And I will say to people, I know you and I see the world differently, but I promise to quote you accurately and and, and more importantly to, to put your quotes in the proper context. One of my proudest moments after the book came out was when I got a text message from one of my sources, who's someone that I argue with all the time, and he said, I just read every reference to me in the book and I have to say that I am, am so pleased that you accurately portrayed my position. To me as a journalist, um, that, that, that's, that's a big deal because it's someone who I don't agree with who was saying to me, I think you were fair to me in your book. And, um, and I try to be that way whether I'm talking with um, an, you know, a, a tribal leader in Yemen or a former army ranger. You know, I, I try to get it right. Even if they disagree with my analysis, I try to make sure that I'm accurate in how I portray people and that I'm fair to them.
2: One thing I find very striking, there was a debate, as you know, uh, during the uh, about whether or not to surge, to pursue a surge strategy in Afghanistan. And it seemed uh, to many outside observers that the president was very ambivalent about this. And the reporting on the internal debate was that Vice President Biden and a number of other figures within the administration felt that, you know, let's go for... Uh, Target raids. Let's rely on special operators, uh, and you know, let's. Uh do that rather than have a heavy footprint. Mm. And it seems interesting because, okay, so you either have a very heavy footprint uh, and sort of a sta- you know, kind of send in more troops and establish more security in that way, uh, or you have a very light footprint. Uh, and so, you know, one of the debates for the people who said we should have a heavy footprint is that, that we'll, we'll have better intelligence mm-hmm. we'll create more real, enduring security. The other view, the Biden view, uh, seemed to be that, well, gosh, you know, that's not really our job. Primarily our job is to identify people who are potentially threats to U.S. interests. We kill them. What's interesting is that you know, that's not exactly a left-right debate, but you know, it was a big versus small debate. and It seemed as though uh, a lot of progressives in the national security community, or what counts as progressives mm-hmm. in the national security community, were people who thought that you know, the Biden strategy, that's the better way to go, that's mm-hmm. the lighter way to go, yet you know, dirty wars is really about that lighter strategy, um, Bi- that smaller
1: strategy. I, I mean, I, I think that, that the Biden strategy, if that's what we're calling it, uh, won the day uh, in terms of what official US policy uh, became. The, the surge in Afghanistan was, I mean, I think it was sort of disastrous. Um, you know, I, I think it subjected a hell of a lot more American troops to being killed. Uh, it gave the perception that the US was attempting to occupy um, Afghanistan. And I think that when the U.S. ends up leaving, the reality is the Taliban are gonna be in control, are going to be in control of a significant portion of that country. There are going to be areas that because the U.S. went in are better off. There's no denying that. As someone who is opposed to the U.S. uh, involvement in Afghanistan, uh, I know that there are parts of Afghanistan um, where life is better for people because the Taliban were expelled from their territories. But there are other areas of Afghanistan where the Taliban is the indigenous power and, and where they are actually wanted. Um, you know, they don't exist in a vacuum. So we surge all of these troops there, and I think we, we ended up making the situation worse. What's happening globally is that President Obama has really uh, doubled down on the idea that JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, and the Targeted Killing Program, it, it, it's not just, these aren't just the, the implementers of a policy. It's become the policy. Uh, the idea that you have small teams of special operations forces uh, that can intervene in countries around the world to conduct at times operations like the Bin Laden raid or at other times to join with French military forces in a campaign in Mali or in, in Somalia against Al-Shabaab um, and that you're gonna rely on the technology of the drones, you're gonna have covert operations being run by both the military and the CIA, that you're going to work with uh, foreign militaries, um, gives a, a much lighter footprint to a much larger global campaign. And I think that that, one of the enduring legacies of Obama's uh, counterterrorism terrorism policy is that he has streamlined a system where assassination, they don't like to call it this, but where assassination is a central component of what is called US national security policy. The idea you can kill your way to victory, you can preempt terrorist, terrorist attacks, you can engage in pre crime, and you're going to try to minimize uh, the deaths of your own soldiers or the maiming of your own personnel. And I think that's been received in a very popular way among many liberals. He sold them on the idea that this is a cleaner way of of waging war. And it was what Biden was advocating from very early on.
2: in a way, I'm struck by how radical the position you're advocating is in the sense that, you know, very simply, to simply say that we're going to treat American lives, we're going to weigh them the way we're going to weigh foreign lives, um, in a way, it, it actually, you know, addresses the very foundations uh, of our kind of a, a nation state, our kind of a democracy. And I say that because, you know, when you're talking about this light footprint versus heavy footprint debate, I mean, sort of the obvious question is, well, gosh, what about the third option? <laughs> well, know, well, I mean, I'm, stating, I'm yeah. stating what the positions are. That's no, not no, no, my no. position. Oh, no, no. Saying, I understand yeah. that. I understand yeah. that. I understand. I have a totally different position, and and I think that um, your your position—if I'm correct me if I'm wrong—seems to be, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be in Afghanistan at all. I mean, rather than debating about heavy footprint versus light footprint, uh, you know, kind of we're not thinking about this third option that we just—is that a fair characterization of your view?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, when you when you're targeting people whose identities you don't even know, uh, against whom you may not even have evidence, these so-called signature strikes, or the incredibly poor intelligence that leads to so many botched night raids. If if you don't step back and say we need to rethink what we're even doing here, y- you're the one that's whistling past the graveyard. I don't mean you. I mean those mm-hmm. in power. Uh, you know. I mean. I, you know. As an American going to multiple countries and hearing in different languages the same sentiment, which is that you know I used to think of America in a totally different way until the drone strike happened or until the night raid happened. I mean, I really did get a clear sense that we are making more enemies than we are killing terrorists. Um, I mean, I think we've reached a point with the drone program where there should be a moratorium on drone strikes, Uh, regardless of if you support them as a smarter way of waging war or not, is irrelevant to me. Just on the basis that we don't know how many people we've killed, the identities of many of the people that we killed, and if they've even had a connection to terrorism. If we're not doing an analysis of uh, the potential impact to global stability and our own national security from our own actions taken in pursuit, supposedly, of confronting a terrorist threat, um, then we're not participating in the democratic process. We've just ceded the sort of conscience to those in power. Champions of the drone strategy will say that you know, look, the alternative to the drone strategy are, are raids, interrogations, yeah, uh, and what I have I disagree you also? with that. I mean, I think the, the alternative is to stop doing it. Um, you know, I mean, we 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 don't we don't think creatively uh, in this country about our foreign policy. There's almost no new ideas in warfare. There's just new technology. all the ideas we've seen, counterinsurgency, all this, it's all been recycled from different wars and studying of different wars. Um, I mean, my position may sound like a radical one, but I actually think it's a sensible, uh, pragmatic one, which is that I I believe that our own national security policy is degrading our national security. Um, And I think you could make a nationalist argument, although I'm not a nationalist, I think you could make a nationalist argument as to why this is bad for America. Uh, Because if you're giving people an incentive, uh, the drone program is a tremendous, pro- a tremendous propaganda value for Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for tehrik Taliban in Pakistan. Um, we are uh, effectively aiding the groups that are organizing terrorist attacks against the United States. At the end of the day, you know, I, I, I think that um, you know policymakers need to step back and look at what the actual impact. Has been. I think they're, they're living in la-la land when they say things like, oh, only a small number of civilians have been killed. I mean, those of us that are journalists working on the ground in those countries just know that that's—it's just a fraudulent claim. Uh, you know, I don't think the president it's is— It's partly a matter strength. of how being a combatant is defined to some degree, right? Oh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, they, they, we have a policy now where anyone who's a military-aged male that's killed in a drone strike is just posthumously declared either a militant or a terrorist. I mean that's that's a grotesque form of pre-crime and military age. That's between seventy and fifteen. Well, I mean it depends on. I mean it it depends on who you ask. Some some would limit it and say you know that it's between you know eighteen and forty. There were some reports that they were doing it anyone above the age of fifteen all the way up to seventy. And you know part of it is because of the way that secrets are kept in this country. We don't actually know the extent of the policy. When the, you know we're talking about these signature strikes, we don't actually know. And and in the case of American citizens. The American people are not aware of what one would do to end up on a kill list, short of being indicted, you know, charged with a crime. I mean, how does someone, what, what gets you on the kill list? We don't actually know the answer to that.
2: But to be very crude about it, if I'm dropping a bomb from an F-16, you be crude. If I'm dropping a bomb from an F-16, uh, you know, it's it's 500-pound bomb, uh, and the number of potential civilian casualties is enormous. Now, what defenders of the drone program will say is that look, this is a grenade-like weapon, and you can hover, and so you can make more precise determinations as to who you're killing. Right. So, you know, I take your point about how look, another scenario is that we just stop it, intervening in this way. But you know, can you see the idea that this drone by virtue of being a scalpel
1: as opposed to a machete that that I mean on a a technical level the the blast radius from you know a a missile fired from a predator drone or a Reaper drone is much smaller than for instance a cruise missile and that's part of the debate that people have is like which is a you know which is less likely to incur huge civilian deaths as a result or collateral deaths whatever they want to call them but I would turn it around on you and, and ask you this so if we're talking about a declared war that the United States is in against a uniformed military um, and there are bombing raids. That applies to what you're saying. You know, you're, you're dropping that 500 pound bomb, civilians die in war. We all know that. How would you set the standard though for when the US has the authority to go in and bomb targets in Yemen or Pakistan? What is, what is the standard that should be applied there? Um, is it that the threat is imminent against the United States? Is it that these are just bad people? Is it that they have, they are, there's chatter that indicates that they're plotting with someone in the United States to do an attack? What is the standard that that you would sort of use to say, you know what, I believe that the United States of America has a right to send an F-16 over to bomb these people or to send a predator drone to take them out? That's, the, that's part of the debate that I think we're not actually having in this country. See, what I would assert is that when we do this in Pakistan or Yemen and we are attacking people that are not engaged in imminent plots. Maybe they're trying to plot against the United States, but it's not like a sniper pointing a rifle at a crowd of civilians and you say, oh shit, what are we gonna do? You don't run to go get an indictment of this person uh, and and, and go through the courts to have permission to take him out, you'll you'll try to take him alive and if necessary, you'll shoot him to prevent him from killing all these innocent people. And that's often the scenario that's presented to the American people by Democrats and Republicans alike. If we don't do this, they're going to hit us there's very little evidence to suggest that many of the people we've killed represented an actual imminent threat to the United States. So for me, the question is, how do we deal with those people who might be engaged in a plot? Do we fast forward straight to the death penalty? Or do we say, let's, let's try to indict these people and to bring them to justice. And if we, if that's not feasible, then the United States has all sorts of options available. But since when did non-imminent threats become a, you know a, a, a trigger for a U.S. drone strike. Daniel Byman,
2: a professor at Georgetown, who is a, an advocate of drone strikes, yeah, yeah. Uh, recently observed that in Mali, you had a document that was passed among jihadis, which said, you know, do not appear in an open field. Right. Uh, do not engage in any wireless communications of any kind. Right. Don't go and, to a wedding or a funeral. <laughs> and so, you know, what's what's interesting about that is, and I think that from the perspective of the, the advocates of drone strikes, is that, well, this means that they are paralyzed, they're crippled. Uh, it's far more difficult for them to organize uh, in opposition uh, to uh, to plan terror strikes and what have you simply because you've actually made it so tentative. You've made them so fearful uh, of death from above, and I think that they would see that
1: as a big win because you know, But you don't think that well, that's necessarily true. Look, I, I actually think that you know, I, I, if you look at how 9-11 was organized, um, a lot of the pl- actual planning for that happened in Europe um, and elsewhere. Uh, so you know, I mean, I I, I think that that presumes that the most devastating plots against the United States are taking place in rural Pakistan or rural parts of Yemen. Um, I think there are very sophisticated terror networks um, that understand how, you know, in general and sometimes in specific how the U.S. national security apparatus apparatus operates. Um, And I think that that may be true to an extent in those countries, but I actually think that uh, you know, we, we live in a borderless world right now when it comes to terrorism and the U.S. response to it. Um, and I think that, uh, that we're, we have a, a, an outdated um, strategy for confronting terrorism. So, you know, maybe that's true. But I also know that in Pakistan and Yemen, mothers are using drones as the boogeyman and saying to children, I mean, think about how devastating this is. Uh, Saying to children, if you don't behave yourself, we're going to send the drones. And kids see the drones, you know, and their parents are saying to them the same way that, you know, that parents through history make these kind of threats against kids about who's going to snatch them in the night. I mean that's devastating. Can you imagine growing up as a kid and you've got this ominous sort of phantom in the sky that has this hum like a lawnmower, and your parent, and you know that it, it fires missiles, and your mom is saying, you know, if you don't, if you don't stop, hit, beating on your brother, the predator is going to come and take. Well, here's you out. another way to think about it. So, you know, when you're talking about
2: where are these plots actually hatched, uh, and let's say they're not necessarily hatched in. Mali or Yemen, although, you know, that can be debated. But, you know, we're not necessarily going to have a very fine-grained sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, what's going on inside people's brains. But those are countries that are full of relatively powerless people. Mm -hmm. uh, And, you know, from the perspective of the United States and its allied countries, which tend to be very affluent, powerful countries, uh, those people are irrelevant uh, in your domestic political conversation. Whereas if you were trying to throw your weight around in the same way in an affluent developed country, uh, then you would meet with a lot of resistance. So to some Extent what we're dealing with here is simply the fact that it's cheaper to engage in this kind of action in these places. Is that? Well, you know, kind
1: of, I mean, I do think that think about it? I, I think I don't. You know, most policymakers. I don't know if any of them would, uh, or or senior officials in the White House would own this. But I do think that part of their strategy with drones is deterrence. I mean, that's pretty much what you're describing there. But my point about this is that. Uh, even if you accept that that, that that has had some success, that there are people afraid to assemble or to get on their phones or, or on the Internet for fear that, that they're going to be tracked and, and, and taken out in a drone strike, um, you still have to examine the impact of that policy. You know, I told you the story about kids being afraid of drones and their moms threatening them. Um, what, what of this generation that's growing up in the kind of drone world in Pakistan and Yemen, what are they going to make of the world or of the United States? What, what's going to motivate them? Uh, You know, revenge is a powerful, you know, powerful force in the world. Um, I mean, that really is my fear at the end of the day, is that in destabilizing some of these countries and in giving people an actual incentive to want to strike back at the United States, we're undermining our own stated goal of trying to take out these terror networks. It's not that there aren't terrorists plotting. There are very real thugs around the world who would love nothing more than to blow up a plane full of American citizens. We've seen evidence of those plots. I've been in areas controlled by Al-Qaeda in Yemen. I know these people exist. For me, the question is how do you deal with them? Uh, you know, and I think that we've totally abandoned any notion that terrorism is a crime. Uh, and, and, and it is, terrorism is a crime. So how do you deal with a crime? Do you just start bombing people? When, so when Jahar Sarnayev was taken into custody in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing, you heard these calls for him to be treated as an enemy combatant. Some people said he should be sent to Guantanamo. Uh, I, th- I think we're operating out of fear in our society, and I think it's 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 so contagious. And I think we've allowed those in power to get away with tremendous grabs against our civil liberties, but also our our collective morals. Um, and and so for me, it's it's what I'm trying to do is to is to sort of. Encourage a more sober discussion about what the real facts are, which is why I said there should be a moratorium on the drone strikes It's not because I don't think there are dangerous people around the world It's because I think that we're running at cross-purposes to what we say the goal is One thing
2: I find so this is something I find terrifying the
1: Lethality
2: of our weapons uh, is going up as the cost of our weapons is going down, and so when you think about drone strikes, uh, relative to raids, assassinations, interrogations, you know Guantanamo, there's enormous pressure uh, to reduce the number of detainees to shut down the facility, even though you know kind of that keeps being pushed further and further in the future. But you know then it creates a situation in which, well, gosh, it's cheaper for us to kill people, or it's less problematic for us to kill than to detain, uh, and it. Seems that this is driven by technological change. So it's not, you know, our drones are getting better; they're becoming more lethal over time. Uh, perhaps they're becoming more precise. Uh, but again, when they're operating in spaces that are generally not seen uh, by American journalists, um, they're not relating to Americans' way of life. But, I mean, you know, I, I wonder. I mean, how do you actually restrain that capacity for violence when it becomes so
1: attractive to people in power? Well. I mean, look, we can't even have, the, the discussion you're trying to have is impossible to have in this country because of secrecy, because of hyper-classification. If, if we have a president, a popular Democratic president, Nobel Peace Prize winner, constitutional you know, lawyer by trade, um, who is asserting that he doesn't have to provide any evidence whatsoever that an American citizen was involved with an actual active plot against the United States before ordering his execution by drone, um, to, to me, that's outrageous. We, we have a right as citizens of this country to be presented with evidence against us before we are given the death penalty. And that, that has not happened in several cases. But I also think it applies to non-Americans too. What you're saying or what, what those in power are saying presumes that all of these people actually are engaged in imminent threats against the United States and that we, the only choice we really have is to take them out by zapping them from the sky. I reject that fundamentally. Um, I I am open to to the idea that I'm wrong about some of these cases, but I want to see the evidence. Well, part of what I'm saying is also this, so... But you're right about the technology issue. Drones make it easier. Uh, You can have someone sitting in a trailer in the southwest of the United States, uh, operating a craft with missiles on it that bombs Pakistan or Yemen, occasionally Somalia, certainly Afghanistan, Um, and they get in their car at the end of the day and drive off that base past a sign that says, Buckle up, this is the most dangerous part of your day. It, it, it makes it far easier. Uh, the toys have become somewhat cheaper, the toys of, of of war, and you don't have to risk American lives. Of course it makes it much easier to say, yeah, I'll authorize that, when you aren't gonna have to call the families of the Navy SEALs who got killed, you know, trying to take down someone in, in Kandahar. Uh, and I think that that's what I find
2: interesting because look at it this way. If I'm, and I'm sure you've heard this from some of your erstwhile friends and allies, Uh, you're President Obama. You come into power. Let's say you decide, you know, we're going to make some kind of radical revision to our policies. Uh, You know, you leave Afghanistan in large numbers, et cetera. And then something happens somewhere. Some Americans die somewhere in a way that can be plausibly or even semi-plausibly connected to something that happened in Afghanistan. Mm. To some degree, I think we're dealing with a kind of cover your ass dynamic, in which you've made a large commitment. And then the idea of changing that commitment in a visible, meaningful way suddenly opens up this enormous political risk in any society in which I would argue there are very few people who would want to increase their risk even ever so slightly Mm -hmm. uh, of uh, death by terrorism as opposed to doing this thing that's actually having these very long-term effects, or as opposed to killing people who are frankly, you know, who can't even be understood, mm. uh, you know, whose lives are so radically different. I mean, you're traveling in Afghanistan, you're traveling in Somalia and Yemen, these lives are unrecognizable. To oh, yeah, Americans and other people, and so you know, it, it's sort of hard. So when you say, "Gosh, you are in danger," and that danger will increase, maybe it'll increase by an imperceptible I would, amount. Rege- I would reject
1: that. I would reject that. That is that 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 we, we know that to be true. Um, I, I think you made a brilliant point a moment ago about the political consideration. I think Rahm Emanuel and all those guys early on the president's political advisors in the first term, you know, the first couple of years of the first term. I think the way that they saw it was this: Obama had uh, very limited foreign policy experience no military experience. He's being briefed by Admiral William McRaven, the commander of JSOC, Stanley McChrystal, who ran JSOC for the entire duration of the Bush era and then became the head of the war in Afghanistan, David Petraeus, one of the most powerful military figures in modern American history. And then all of the heads of the various intelligence agencies in the US, all, all saying there are hundreds if not thousands of concurrent threats against the United States on any given day. People wanted to blow up airplanes, attack embassies, poison water supplies, blow up public transportation systems. And if we don't hit them before they hit us, there will be an attack on American soil against the American homeland. And I think that the president and his national security team uh, basically bought into the idea that, that um, we need to kill these people before, before they kill us. Rahm Emanuel and those guys, I think we're looking at a one-term presidency if any of those things came true. And so I think that that's part of what shaped the policy, was a, was political considerations. Um, but to the second part- And of
2: course, they yeah. would say, look, we have important domestic missions to accomplish. Uh, there are new frontiers in social justice we want to advance. We are definitely better than the other guys. Oh, And I mean, so yeah, because of, course. of that, and that's obviously their view. So to some extent, they will consider this entirely justifiable if it actually redounds
1: to their political benefits. Look at how pathetic Mitt Romney looked in the foreign policy debate with Obama. It's like, I mean, I almost felt bad for the dude, you know, um, except because of what he did to his dog, Seamus. I can never feel bad, to him, but, but bad for him. But but Romney basically just had to say, oh, well, I would be like Obama, except more Obama-ish than Obama on foreign policy. I mean, they they, they had to go into ding-back Christmas to find stuff about him not being a citizen and the kind of dog whistling and all that, because he's better at their game than they are. Somewhere, I imagine Cheney, between shooting friends in the face and fly fishing, chuckling about the Obama presidency and saying, you know, Obama actually cleaned this up so that it can continue. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that, that really was the reality. The next time a Republican is in office, many of the, of the, these, the key parts of the program from the Bush chain era are gonna be kept in place. So do you imagine that any president, any imaginable president, let's say Hillary Clinton wins in
2: 2016, will any imaginable president say, you know what? I'm actually going to take the political hit. Because I think that this will redound to the long-term benefit of America's image in the world, uh, because this will reduce the number of civilian casualties of the children of shepherds uh, in the Fatah in Pakistan and sort of in Yemen. Uh, you know, this will be a little bit easier than them. They'll be a little bit less fearful of the United States. And you know, this will have some. Can you imagine any?
1: No. No, they wouldn't win. I mean, first of all, they wouldn't win, and they, and, and uh, it, it wouldn't be allowed. And I don't mean it wouldn't be allowed because there's a cabal of people pulling the strings behind it. I just think that uh, that would be out of sync with the majority of Americans' view of the world. First of all, it wouldn't be a viable campaign. Even though, I, I mean, I, I do think that there's, there's legitimacy to, the, to those ideas. Um, th- to me, at the end of the day, if we don't get huge corporations out of our electoral process, uh, nothing is fundamentally going to change in our society. We're always going to produce candidates that, uh, are in some way or another bought and paid for by by big corporate but interests. But with this issue in particular... Uh, I'm talking about this issue in particular, well, too.
2: So with, with the one thing about this issue in particular, but it does seem to flow from the fact that um, empathy across international borders is kind of limited, you know, whether or not... It's almost co- non-existent.
1: I mean, it's almost non-existent. But the, it's not corporations that are responsible. No, no. no for that, but I'm, right? Well, I was, I was answering yeah. your question about it. Yep. would a candidate yeah, rise up. I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, um, you, you have to be an American exceptionalist to win the presidency of the United States. And, and Obama— How do you define that? How do you define an American well, exceptionalist? Well, um, I, I think at its core is the idea that, um, that American lives are worth more than the lives of others around the world and that the United States at the end of the day is not bound by any international laws or conventions if it believes that it is defending its own interests. Um, And U.S. interests under various presidents could be defined very broadly. Um, And I think we saw this adventuristic presidency of Bush where U.S. interests were stretched beyond imagination. Um, You know, the the idea that the United States had to go into Iraq, uh, first of all the fraudulent claims about WMDs, but then they tried to make the case that uh, U.S. interests were at stake because of Saddam Hussein remaining in power. Um, and I so I think American exceptionalism means that the United States is not held to the same standards as other nations around the world when it comes to International rules of law and order uh, You know the United States refuses to ratify Basic conventions on the kinds of munitions that can be used in warfare we, we, we continue to use cluster bombs uh, Which almost every nation on earth has agreed should be banned the United States continues to use cluster bombs and and they're horrible anti-personnel weapons I, I, so the idea that you would have an American president that would stand up and say, you know what, when U.S. forces engage in war crimes, um, we'll allow them to be prosecuted at The Hague. Good luck with that campaign. You know, when, when that was proposed, when the idea was proposed in the 90s when Clinton was president, that the U.S. would actually recognize an international criminal court, uh, there were lawmakers on Capitol Hill who discussed... Putting forward a bill, the Hague Invasion Act, that would have authorized U.S. military forces to go in and snatch U.S. personnel who were being prosecuted for war crimes, if that ever happened. Well You're sounding very fatalistic. So, I
2: mean, do you see the work that you're doing to persuade people? Uh, do you see this as a generational
1: project? Do you see this as something where you know, over it's a, a long very long war. Period yeah, of time- it's. I mean, it's it's a long war. I mean, I think if you and I were sitting down five or ten years ago, I may have thought or pretended that I actually had a set of solutions as to how to change this. Um, what I'm hoping for in the projects I'm working on right now uh, is to um, make a dent in the debate. Um, I think we have a rare opening right now because the president gave his address on counterterrorism and you know and targeted killing, um, because of the Rand Paul filibuster of John Brennan's nomination. This is out in the open in a way it hasn't been for quite some time. Um, and so I see it as one of those rare moments where we actually can have a real discussion in this country. Um, to, to me, the debate we've had over the past 12 years about how we as a society responded to 9-11 um, has, has, has not been fierce enough. And I don't think we've asked many of the right questions. I mean, the, the core question for me, and I keep coming back to it because I do think it's an essential one. Is our national security policy making us safer or is it degrading our security? That, that, that to me is a starting point on this because from that stems all sorts of investigations. In a way, though, when you put it that way, it makes the choice seem relatively easy.
2: And what I want to know is this. There are a lot of folks, um, you know, the political scientist John Mueller is one of them. There are many others who have at the margins, and I think slowly been changing the conversation by saying things like, hey, wait a second. You know, peanut allergies kill more people than international terrorism. Uh, and, you know, and it's interesting because, these, again, these views, there was a time when they were totally unacceptable, and right. you see them creeping more and more toward the mainstream, and partly that could be the distance we have now from 9-11. But we, so what if you were to say, yes, we have to accept some degree of risk. That is part of living in a free society. And any politician who's going to tell you that we're going to be able to eliminate these risks uh, is lying to you. I agree with you. So, I mean, I, but I wonder, I mean, so would you be willing to say that, look, we should not engage in these practices, even
1: if it meant some increase in risk? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that our current practices are increasing our risk. That That's part of the point here. It's not just that, so I don't accept that it's a zero sum, that we're sort of starting from a position where the current policy is keeping us safe, and I'm the ones attacking it. Uh, and saying, "Oh, we should be made less safe so but, that we don't do these I'm things." But that's why I'm asking. I mean, sort of for the sake of. No, argument. I know you are. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 tra- yeah. I'm trying to respond. Yeah, to of, it. I'm course, not, of course, of course, of know, course. It's not you directly. I'm <laughs> saying this is something that people say. Yeah. So I don't start from the position that this is keeping us safer, and 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 so maybe that's you know maybe it's because I'm speaking a different language. And I but I've been to these countries on the ground, and I, I I'm not just you know uh, ta- uh, speaking from my couch, um, and 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 I you know I think that. Uh, when you go on the ground, and that was a very polite way
2: to put that, by the way.
1: Okay, please. <laughs> right. I mean, well, we know we do have a lot of you know people from the eighty-third Chairborne division, you know, <laughs> who are pontificating about the way things should be in the world, and they don't know jack. You know, they're just they're they are embedded in their you know on the internet in their you know in their living rooms, and so you know what I I'm, I'm not speaking from a position of uh, boy, these, this is theoretical politics. I actually think that we are increasing our likelihood of being attacked because of our policy. But that, but that, to me, is the re- that should be part of the debate. Um, and I don't think there are many people on Capitol Hill that reflect that school of thinking. In fact, I, I, I think that on issues of, of US national security, we don't have a real debate. The Democrats have been largely out to lunch during the Obama era. And then the Republicans, with few exceptions, are basically the, the crazy parade on this stuff, where it's you know, Benghazi was the second coming of 9-11. I, I'm one of the few people on the left who actually believes that there, sh- there has not been a thorough investigation into what happened in Benghazi. But the debate or the investigation has been disserved by the crazy parade of, of conspiracy theorists who are harping about Susan Rice. Our ambassador was killed there in an incredible breach of, of that consulate. Um, I don't believe it was just some loony bin reaction to a video of the Prophet Muhammad. I think that there were covert actions that were going on in Libya that we are not aware of, and that there was a low intensity war happening, and I think it was a very well organized attack on that consulate, not a spontaneous demonstration. But we can't have that real debate, and the White House has been given cover by the Michelle Bachmans of the world, if, if, you, if you get what I'm saying. So I'm all for ha- living in the real world and having these debates, um, but we can't exclude the possibility that our policy is part of the problem, or else it's, a not, it's not a real debate, it's not intellectually mm-hmm. honest. Libya is
2: a fascinating example because here was a case where uh, you had Britain and France uh, very keen to intervene, and it seemed as though the Obama administration was reluctant to do so. And then, given that its allies had gone in, entered, and I think that this could mm-hmm. be, you know, from someone who is an Obama defender, uh, you know, could be just the view that, you know, this. Person is doing his best in an extraordinarily difficult situation, uh, having gone in there, wanting to maintain a light for, a footprint. Mm-hmm. Light footprint, to some degree, means that there's going to continue to be chaos. And you know, the reporting now seems to suggest that in Benghazi there was some effort to actually uh, identify various dangerous weapons that had been there, and so kind of they had personnel. It wasn't actually a consulate as mm-hmm. such. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was characterized after the fact in order mm-hmm. to. Uh, but it seems that you know, wow. I mean. <laughs> It just seems like an impossible situation for him to be in yeah. uh, and for you know, his team to be in. And it seems that,
1: uh, you know, what was the other choice they could have made? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, you know, we got in bed with uh, very unsavory characters in Libya. Um, and, you know, Qaddafi was not brought down in a, um, in a domestic uprising. That's not, the, you know, that's often what the story is. Uh, there was a U.S. and NATO air war that uh, really led to Gaddafi's downfall. I don't, think, I don't know that Gaddafi would have been overthrown had the United States uh, not gotten involved to the degree that it did. Um, so then that goes back to the old questions about regime change. And is it, is it the business of the United States to be intervening in the affairs of other nations? And that's, you know, the, you, you have the Richard Holbrook Uh, sort of school of foreign policy of uh, and Susan Rice, uh, you know, is a key player in this Uh, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton, um, you know, have been fierce advocates of the idea that the United States should use a humanitarian Basis for intervention. That was what the Yugoslavia war was all about. Mm -hmm. You you know, the 78-day air war in, in 1999 Democrats like to frame things in terms of humanitarian interventions. There's a lot of pressure right now for instance on the White House to intervene more directly in Syria And I actually give President Obama a lot of credit for not doing that um, because I think that it's a fool's errand. Uh, You know, the United States should have learned a lesson from Afghanistan uh, when it was funding the Mujahideen and arming them in the battle against the Soviet Union. You know, we got involved with this epic proxy war and it came back to hit us. Um, I'm more in line with a lot with conservatives about uh, Syria than I am with a lot of my liberal friends who are pushing for President Obama to intervene. Um, I, don't, I don't think the U.S. should be intervening in
2: Syria. One of the other arguments is that had we intervened earlier on, and not necessarily intervened militarily, but had we formed connections with the opposition what have you, perhaps we'd know more about the opposition and be in a better position to influence the situation, but you don't find that well, persuasive?
1: I mean, look, I think that, I, I think, you know, to sort of put on a more, uh, you know, kind of uh, empire hat, um, The US is, has, is, is the U.S. intelligence in that region is almost totally bankrupt. I mean, this is a big part of the problem. It was part of why why the 9-11 attacks happened. The United States didn't have any operatives that had infiltrated Al-Qaeda to speak of. Um, In Yemen, our our intelligence has largely been outsourced to a corrupt network of informants and the Saudis. Um, In countries like Syria or Libya, the extent of the US relationship with those regimes had to do with uh, the rendition program or the you know the extraordinary rendition program where both Bashar al-Assad and Muammar Gaddafi cooperated with the CIA in the US. Um, I think that we have uh, relied so heavily on technology on signals intercepts, on drone strikes and on other government's intelligence agencies that we don't have a, a very clear independent picture that that allows us to analyze, uh, what U.S. interests would actually be in some of these countries. Now you're giving a specific example about knowing who the rebel groups are. That would be part of it. Uh, you know, Often we're playing catch up, or it seems like the, those in power are playing catch up we're trying to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And in Syria you have some pretty thuggish characters that would almost certainly be on the receiving end of U.S. military or intelligence aid. And so that's something that the president would have to look at very carefully. John McCain has been cowboyish about this. And, you know on his little you know trips into Syria and elsewhere I mean in calling for the u.s to be more directly involved with arming these groups I mean it's I would I would suggest that he look more closely at the history of, of what the us did in Afghanistan I do think it's a model there's an interesting
2: Dynamic in humanitarian intervention. So you have a group of people who have historically been oppressed. Let's say in South Sudan, uh, you know, you have the Janjaweed militia and what have you. And then, you know, kind of when you have a doing people, the killing, the Janjaweed exactly, exactly, right exactly. Now. And then when you have a group of people fighting back mm-hmm. against those who are kind of killing and oppressing them, when you have a real conflict, uh, when you have, then suddenly you draw international attention. Mm-hmm. So you know, you could have, uh, or when you look at uh, Kosovo, for example. I mean, sort of this wasn't, you know, the Kosovo Albanians had been oppressed in a variety of ways, and then. Then, when you have the KLA uh, engaging in armed conflict, mm. then suddenly yeah. it becomes an international issue. Well, suddenly, you draw right attention, right. Yeah. and so it seems like this perverse dynamic in which the only way to draw attention is to take up arms. Mm. You draw attention, then you have some outside intervention. Uh, but I mean, part of what you seem to be saying is that. The powers that be, the most powerful states, they need to exercise in a certain kind of restraint because what happens is that you have this conflagration, you have this conflict, we go and deal with the conflict, then the public turns away. So again, you have slaughter in Syria, the public is fixed on it. What do we do about this because it's appearing on the news? And then, you know, you do something about it, then you turn away. And during that period when you turn away is when all kinds of chaos is potentially unleashed, or you engage in these practices, uh, you know, which again, using the technological tools at your disposal, you engage in these practices that engender more hatred and resentment. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that initially, we need to engage in this restraint to be able to turn away. Is that a fair
1: characterization? Well, no. I mean, I, I actually uh, i am much more of an isolationist. I mean, I, I'm, I would go far beyond that. I don't think that it's the business of the United States to play cop of the world. And I also don't think that we've proven ourselves to be an honest broker in many of these conflicts. Look, You, you bring up Yugoslavia. I mean, I was there, I covered that that war. Uh, You know, it was a 78-day bombing campaign. There was covert and overt assistance to the Kosovo Liberation Army. And the way that it was portrayed was that there was genocide against the Kosovo-Albanian population. When I was on the ground, I mean, I think a tremendous uh, amount of the killing by Serbian paramilitaries and Serbian forces in Kosovo uh, happened after we started bombing. It gave Milosevic's forces air cover to go in. So part of that story hasn't fully been written. I mean, Milosevic was a murderous thug. Um, so were the leaders of the Kosovo Liberation Army. One of the heads of it, uh, Agam Ceku, was a war criminal um, who was supported by the United States in the previous war in the Balkans. The whole thing is a big mess and it's complicated, but the reason I'm I'm bringing this up is because when when President Clinton was making the case for why the U.S. should be involved on a humanitarian military level, military humanism, um, in Bosnia, that same period, the U.S. was dumping weapons into Turkey, selling the Turkish government Uh, weapons and providing them with military assistance that was being directly used to mass slaughter Kurds, you know, just systematically murdering Kurds with U.S. weapons. So how can we on the one hand say, well, we're going to intervene here to stop this mass slaughter, and then at the same time we're going to be providing weapons to a government that is using our munitions to murder ethnic minorities within their own country. Our credibility is nil um, in the um, Arab world right now on this issue. Look at Syria's neighbor, Iraq. That is a country that we helped to utterly destroy uh, with the invasion and occupation. We caused a mass exodus of Iraqi refugees into Syria, which is part of the story there. So how are we now going to be the people that come in and say, "Oh, let's, let's uh, you know, let's let's uh, end this by giving these rebel groups weapons so they can overthrow a guy that we support when it's convenient for our interests?" I mean, I just think we we have nothing in the bank of credibility on on a military level around the world anymore, and it's nothing to say about the. It's not saying anything about the men and women in the U.S. military or even the people that are sort of looking at counterterrorism as their primary goal in life. It's the policymakers who have who have engaged in a series of disastrous interventions. Um, over the over several decades, but let's just talk about in the post 9-11 world that I think have really made it difficult for us to appear to be an honest broker in any of this. I'm this sure I'm driving well, you nuts but right but now. This is well, but, no,
2: but I think that what I what I find interesting is that you're someone who clearly has very deep empathy for uh, the people in these uh, zones of conflict uh, and I imagine that empathy is not just about the fact that they might be uh, the victims uh, of you know, American military strikes, um, and you know what's confusing here, uh, and I don't mean just because what you're saying is confusing as such, but it's you know so you have Americans who have this humanitarian impulse. The trouble is that humanitarian impulse doesn't last. I mean, sort of, it, it it's there during this focused moment when you know you see hunger or deprivation or violence uh, on your. You know, to the I wish of the we news. had the
1: credibility. I wish we had credibility to to. Be viewed as an honest broker. I, I I think look when we talk about Yugoslavia, you, you know Yugoslavia is so it's such a complicated history um, That it's, it's almost impossible to have a, a serious debate about it because you either you either sound like you're an apologist for one side in that civil war or you come off as a naive interventionist who, who, who just believes that what the United States does is go in and stop genocide. And, and, and somewhere sort of in the, in the mix of this is the reality of what does it mean when the U.S. intervenes for humanitarian purposes in another country. In Syria, my concern would be that if the U.S. intervenes, it actually would make it worse um, and, that, and that it would accelerate killing or that by giving weapons to these groups, it'll, it, will, it will create blowback. I mean, I want the, uh, the horror uh, in Syria to come to an end, but ultimately it's a civil war. Ben Emerson, uh, the U.N. rapporteur who has yeah, addressed
2: uh, 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 terrorism and sort of and related issues and he's, been, he's condemned uh, the U.S. drone program, uh, he's talked about how what we ought to address, what the affluent countries ought to address in, in sort of these zones of conflict, is poverty and authoritarianism mm-hmm. and other sources of desperation. Is, is that kind of where you think we ought to wind up? Is that kind of the thing, you know, kind of rather than, you know, don't intervene militarily, but are there other steps that we, um, as kind of citizens of wealthy, powerful democracies
1: yeah, I mean, it would, it would require reimagining our role in the world. Um, I mean, I would love to be a citizen of a nation that was, that was actually perceived around the world for credible reasons, to be about uh, using the force of our morals to undermine despots and dictators. I just don't think that we are in that position right now. I think President Obama had a real opportunity when he first came into office to not fully— re- you know, it's such a cliche, cliche to say, re- hit the reset button but to to tilt the policy in a different direction, or at least the rhetoric emanating from the United States, and to a degree he did that, but largely I think the message that's been sent by his presidency is that it doesn't matter much who is in power in the US. The US military policy is gonna remain sort of static. I'll give you a concrete example. When I was in southern Yemen talking to tribal leaders and asking them about uh, various leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and they were saying, look, we see these guys all the time. They go to restaurants, they go to the mosque, we, we see them all the time. Your drones don't ever, you know, can't ever find them. They seem to find all sorts of villagers to hit, but they don't find the leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And I said, what would it take for you guys if the United States demanded their extradition to hand them over? And and almost all of the tribal leaders I, said, I, I talked to said, if you stop sending the drones and you actually started funding projects in our areas that were about schools or water purification, um, helping us with our civilian infrastructure, you would give an incentive to local people to say, we don't want these parasites in our community. I I think we've undermined our own possibility of bringing people to justice because we've fast forwarded to the military response. So those kind of direct contacts, whether it's tribes in in Yemen or Pakistan um, or, in a good faith gesture saying we're going to give these nations a chance to hand these individuals over who we've indicted because we have evidence that they're involved with terrorist plots and if they don't then you can go back to the drawing board of this stuff we haven't even tried it since 9-11 it's almost non-existent our the law enforcement approach to it but yes i do think that that those kinds of people the people ties would be far more profound in their impact than going straight to the military solution or arming of rebel groups jeremy you've You've written very movingly about the targeting of journalists around the world in the course of the war on terror. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, record numbers of journalists have been killed in the past few years, and most of them are unfamous journalists. They're not Americans. Um, you know, we all know about the targeting of the Associated Press's phone records and what happened with James Rosen, the Fox News reporter, and, of course, the prosecution of whistleblowers under, under President Obama. In our film, you know, one of the stories that we tell is about a journalist named Abdullah Haider Shaya, who was a Yemeni journalist that had gone to the scene of the first missile strike that President Obama authorized against Yemen in December of 09. And at the time, the United States was concealing its role in that bombing. And the Yemeni government had taken responsibility for this strike. And they said that they had taken out an Al Qaeda camp. And this Yemeni journalist goes there and takes photographs and, of women and children being pulled out of the rubble and photographs the US cruise missile parts and sends them around the world to media outlets and to Amnesty International. Amnesty International then has a munitions expert look at it and determines that it was a U.S. missile attack. So we knew now that under President Obama, Yemen was being bombed. And this journalist was going on prominent networks around the world talking about how America was now bombing Yemen. He, shortly after he started blowing the whistle on this, was abducted by Yemen's U.S.-backed security forces, taken to a political security prison, beaten, and told, if you don't stop talking about this, we're gonna put you back in here for good he went straight that night to Al Jazeera and went on the air and said, I was just threatened, I was beaten, and, um, and he continued to report on this. And he was interviewing uh, leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and doing, I mean, he was doing real journalism. And he, I mean, I've, I've extensively reviewed his work and he was a, a really serious, independent-minded uh, journalist who puts to shame many of the people sitting in the front row at the White House press briefings in terms of the kinds of questions he would ask jihadist leaders. I mean, he was a r- truly remarkable guy. Anyway, long story short, he keeps reporting this, and eventually his house is raided. He's taken to prison and disappeared for 30 days. He then is hauled into a specialized criminal tribunal that was set up in part to prosecute journalists in Yemen who had committed crimes against the Yemeni dictatorship. And they charged him with being an Al-Qaeda facilitator. And he was sentenced to five years in prison. His trial was condemned by every major human rights and media freedom organization in the world as a sham trial in a kangaroo court. He gets sentenced to five years in prison. There's such an uh, outcry in Yemen over his imprisonment uh, from civic society groups, uh, from tribal uh, leaders, that the dictator of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, decides to pardon him. And word leaks in the Yemeni media that he's going to pardon Abdullah al Shia. And that day, he gets a phone call from the White House, not from some undersecretary of blah, 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 from the president himself. And President Obama says that the United States is deeply concerned uh, about reports that you're going to release Abdullah Haider Shia, this journalist, and the pardon is then ripped up, and he remains in prison to this day. And in uh, in early June, I'm sure the backstory behind this is. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I can tell you part of it. In early June of this year, he smuggled a note out of prison and said, uh, "There's only one person responsible for keeping me in this jail, and it's President Barack Obama." Now, what's the backstory of it? Well, first of all, you don't need to take my word for it. The print the readout of that phone call is on the White House website, and they don't deny that they did it that they called and said, we don't want him released. They claim that he is connected to Al-Qaeda and that he's involved with terrorist plots. I don't know a single journalist that has worked with him. I haven't found anyone that can produce a single shred of evidence to suggest that this guy was anything other than a journalist who was covering the Al-Qaeda beat. And my personal belief is that the White House did not want him interviewing Al-Qaeda figures and did not want him exposing U- the aftermath of US drone strikes and missile strikes. And I think that that's why the White House is keeping him in prison. And to me, it's just utterly shameful. Uh, this is a guy who worked, did work for the Washington Post, ABC News, NBC. Uh, we know that Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, the, um, the American uh, citizen who was a, an imam that was killed in Yemen in a drone strike in 2011, some of his most outrageous statements that we know of came because Abdullah Haider Shaya interviewed him and asked him tough questions about his praising of Nadal Hassan's uh, shooting of his fellow soldiers at Fort Hood, about praising the underwear bomber, the attempt to blow up a civilian airplane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009, because he asked him tough questions. And so I, my belief is that he's in prison for, because he was a good journalist in Yemen. And, um, and I think it's just utterly shameful that he's still there. Uh, thanks very much, Jeremy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great to talk to you.